0: I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning
1: each week at educationnext.org.
0: On Thursday, December 10th, President Obama signed the Every Student Succeeds Act, replacing No Child Left Behind as the nation's major federal education law. The president had high praise for Congress's work, calling it nothing less than a Christmas miracle. Lily Eskelson-Garcia, president of the National Education Association, went further, saying that she was having Christmas the 4th of July and a happy Hanukkah all at once. Nor were they alone. The bill passed the House and Senate with overwhelming bipartisan support. With the key negotiators from both parties claiming to be happy with their compromise. Interest groups ranging from the National School Boards Association to the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools, from the National Governors Associations to the major civil rights groups, all issued statements of approval. But how much of this was political posturing, an attempt to claim victory once the law's passage had become a foregone conclusion? Who were the real winners and losers in this deal, and what does it all mean for what comes next? Hello and welcome to the EdNext podcast. I'm Marty West executive editor of Education Next. And joining me today by phone is Michael Petrilli, president of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute and also an Education Next editor. Mike, thanks for joining me today. Great to be with you, Marty. So let's try and figure this out. Did the president really want to sign this bill?
1: <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a really good question. I, I think that the president wanted to sign this bill. Uh, I'm not sure that his education secretary, Arnie Duncan, wanted him to. At least the, the puzzle here is that he could have signed this bill, uh, a bill like it, years ago. You know, back in 2011, there was an effort to reauthorize the No Child Left Behind Act that was making some progress. That bill uh, that was going through then looks an awful lot like the final one here, and yet uh, the White House at the time was issuing veto threats, and Arnie Duncan was saying all kinds of bad things about it. I think uh, if if we look back and we look at the history of this, this, this could have happened a whole lot sooner had the administration come on board I think in the end, they were glad that, uh, that the bill didn't water down their priorities even more. It didn't, for example, strip out the annual testing requirement. But the administration, you know, mo- most of the administration's priorities, most of their legacy from race to the top and from waivers, most of that is now gone. And so I think it's, it's pretty tough for them to declare this a victory.
0: So what's not in the bill that, that they would have wanted to see? I mean, obviously, uh, teacher evaluations would be one example, right, a policy that they've been pushing on states through the waiver process. If you go back to, uh, not to the 2011 bill, but the Democrats' bill in 2013, uh, that would have been included as a requirement for states receiving Title I funds. So that's one clear example. What else?
1: That's right. And that's a huge deal, Marty, right? I mean, this was a massive change in federal policy, one that many of us thought uh, was done illegally because it was a condition added to the waivers. Didn't have any statutory authority, but was leading to significant uh, changes in policy all around the country. So that was a big one for sure. Uh, you know, I I think the other uh, the other piece was of course race to the top. That uh, you know the, there was the original race to the top with the stimulus bill, but then in budget since then the administration has been pushing for big competitive programs like that one. They didn't get that either. Uh, there school improvement grant program, which was the effort to try to turn around low-performing schools. That was taken out. Uh, now it was replaced with another funding stream, but basically with, with almost no federal oversight.
0: It almost, over becomes, it almost becomes optional, right? It's uh, something you can use your Title I funds if you want to, if you're a state,
1: as I understand that's it. Right. That's right. And that's another big deal. I mean, look, just, just a few weeks ago, Arnie Duncan gave a big speech, kind of his going-away speech, talking about their big successes on teacher evaluation, on Common Core, on school improvement grants, on Race to the Top, on, you know, all of those things are now gone in terms of federal involvement or at least significantly scaled back.
0: But the administration can point to some victories in the bill, I think it's important to say, right? Uh, So, uh, I mean, preserving annual testing, which even at the start of this calendar year seemed to be something of a open question. Uh, They fought off portability proposals, a longstanding Republican priority. They kept maintenance of effort requirements. Um, and so there's certainly some things that the administration could point to as uh, victories, as sort of places where the compromise worked in their
1: favor. That's right, where they, they were able to successfully play defense. And the testing thing is important. I mean, keep in mind, we've had this huge backlash to testing, the big opt-out movement that happened this spring. Uh, and yet at this moment, uh, the, the anti-testing folks were not able to get those testing requirements removed, uh, and the tests are still going to count for most of school grades under the new state accountability systems going forward. So, you know, it, it, to the extent that the anti-testing folks were hoping to really uh, declare success, they they didn't have a clean victory here either.
0: So what are the unions so excited about, Mike? Uh, you, I quoted... Uh Lily uh, Eskelsen yep. Garcia earlier, uh, Randy Weingarten has also been, you know, issuing mm-hmm. statements saying our long nightmare with no child left behind is over. What did yep. they get out of the package, uh, or do you think that's merely credit
1: claiming? I think that some of that is credit claiming. I mean, look, both both Lily and Randy are under pressure from their left wing, uh, and so it helps them to be able to declare that they earned victory, that all this uh, dues money that their members are paying did some good, uh, that their lobbying expenses did some good. Uh, and and they did have some victories in that some of the big fights now move from the federal level to the state level. And there's no doubt that the unions are stronger at the state level than they've been, at least for years, at the federal level. So they are hopeful that they can win some of these fights. So, for example, they'll have a chance to get rid of teacher evaluation systems or get rid of the testing components from them. Uh, they'll have a chance to... Uh, significantly changed state accountability systems, and they will certainly be working to try to make those systems be less focused on testing and more focused on what they consider sort of opportunity to learn kinds of indicators. So here the question is, will they actually win at the state level or not? But but keep in mind, they did not win on testing, uh, and uh, and they did not win on the basic notion around uh, schools being judged by test scores. So I think they are in, you know, look, everybody's claiming credit because it helps them with their internal organizational politics, uh, but they can't, the, the unions can't really declare victory until we see how this plays out state by state.
0: All right, so let's go to the states and and talk about the National Governors Association, which was uh, enthusiastic about the bill at the on the eve of its passage. I think they uh, issued their first sort of unanimous statement of support for a piece of legislation since the nineteen ninety six welfare reform mm-hmm. law, um, and you know this policy as really been characterized as devolving a lot of control to the states, especially with respect to the design of accountability systems. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is that is that an accurate characterization? I mean, if I look at the language in the law, it certainly became uh, a bit more, I'm not sure about prescriptive, but certainly more convoluted, uh, you know, in the conference process.
1: Right, right. Well, look, there, there's still the I, I think on the whole, when you compare this to waivers, and certainly when you compare it to the original No Child Left Behind, the states do have a lot more room to run here. I mean, they they have to include. There's there's three kinds of indicators they have to include. They have to look at academic achievement, things like proficiency rates or, you know, rates of how many kids get to the advanced level. They 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 have to look at growth, or they can come up with an alternative to that. I hope they do focus on growth, since that is in my opinion, and I think yours too, Marty, one of the the, the fairest ways to evaluate schools. That's right. They have to look at the progress of English language learners in in getting to proficiency in English. That seems to make sense. Uh, And then they have some flexibility around another set of indicators around, uh, you know, broader issues like student engagement or non-cognitive skills, social-emotional learning. That is the big question mark. What are they going to do with that? Uh, That is where the unions will try to have a field day and putting on a lot of squishy stuff. Uh, I think that you could actually come up with some pretty interesting indicators there to try to give a broader, uh, more balanced look at school quality. And and I think that's where states are going to have some leeway. And then there's going to be a significant amount of authority in figuring out how you take all these different indicators and turn it into some kind of school grade. Uh, That's important if if you still believe people are paying attention to school grades, which I sometimes wonder about. But it's most important because that's how they have to identify the 5% of their schools that are lowest performing that they are supposed to do something about. Uh, in terms of intervention.
0: So they, uh, a lot of flexibility about how you roll all of these discrete components up into one summary indicator, and then uh, what you do with the 5% of schools that you're required to uh, intervene in. My understanding, I mean, the way I think about it is really uh, what states are now required to do is to go on the record publicly about what they're going to do, uh, mm-hmm. but the Secretary of Education, the department doesn't have much authority to say that's not enough.
1: That's right. But, but the but there's a question here, Marty, which is that you know the next step in the process is not for the states to do anything. It's really for the, the U.S. Department of Education to issue, issue regulations. And that's going to be interesting to watch. I mean, the, the law tries to tie the hands of the education secretary and his staff so that they cannot do much regulating beyond what's in the law on these kinds of issues. We'll see. How much they try to get away with? There's now going to be a negotiated rulemaking process for the first time in a, in a K-12 bill, mm-hmm. uh, where stakeholders will get to weigh in and, and uh, negotiate over those regs. And so we'll see. We'll see. For example, uh, that they're in the law. They say that the academic indicators have to have I forget what the term is now. If maybe you'd remember much more weight. Yeah, much, much more weight. That's right. So will the department regulate and and say, what does that mean? Is there a percentile? There's
0: also some language in the bill under rules of construction saying that the uh, department isn't allowed to give greater meaning to terms than is uh, clear from the text. But I'm not sure how that works out, whether then, you know, the language is utterly meaningless. So uh, it seems like that will be a point to focus on in the negotiated rulemaking. So. All right. So that's one thing clearly you're going to be watching going forward to understand how this law is actually going to translate into changes uh, for American students, uh, the rulemaking process in the Department of Education. Uh, What else should we be looking at going forward? Mike, what are you going to be tracking at the Fordham Institute?
1: Well, I think uh, teacher evaluation is something that could change immediately, and that's going to be interesting to watch. I mean, because there's nothing in the law about teacher evaluation, other than I think there's some funding that you could use for that purpose, uh, then I assume that pretty much right away, if states want to get rid of these evaluation systems they built uh, in order to qualify for the waivers, they could start to dismantle them. Uh, So that's going to be something to watch, I think, in this next legislative session, is to see how hard the unions push to do that, uh, and what the states do i mean my my own view is that a lot of these systems are pretty badly broken that that the the state's really scotched it, and this is a chance to step back and to have a reboot and to do it better uh, and maybe take some more time and and maybe uh you know try to hold teachers and schools uh, harmless for a while as as we go through all these difficult transitions. I think that's something that's going to be interesting to watch right away uh and uh and then it's going to be really watching the regs when it comes to the accountability stuff.
0: Now, what about the Common Core, Mike? Uh, I've heard claims on uh, you know by uh, proponents and critics of the Common Core saying that this is great because uh, it makes it clear that the federal government has no involvement, no say whatsoever on the standards that uh, that that states choose. But then I've also heard concern on the right that actually this is. Uh, somehow sort of sneaking in uh, continued support for the Common Core. Um, what What do you make of all that, and, and what are we, you watching going forward as yeah. someone who's been involved in this process?
1: I, I do not understand where people see the sneaking in. I mean, I don't think Congress could have done anything else to make it crystal clear. We want the federal government to have nothing to do with this. And I do think that's going to be helpful. Look, the thing to know is that the Common Core fight in some ways had already been Settling down. You, you wouldn't know that from listening to the Republican presidential candidates, but you know last year's fight in the state legislatures was not as tough as the year before. Uh, this, I think, you know, state policymakers are showing some fatigue at this issue. You do now have some states, especially red states, that have started processes to review the standards or to talk about renaming them. All of that, in my view, is fine and appropriate. I mean, it is almost now six years since we adopted these standards. It's it's, you know, going to be time to look at them and to say uh, whether we need to make some tweaks. But uh, I am hopeful that we're not going to see many pushes for all-out repeal this spring, or at least many successful ones. I think we are going to see these standards evolve over time in each of the states, and so they're going to become less common over time. But I'm hopeful that the core of the Common Core will remain, and, and that's because I think that in the end of the day, they do a pretty good job of expressing what it takes to be college and career ready. And I do think that taking away the federalism argument is going to be helpful.
0: So bottom line, Mike, who are the real winners and losers in this legislative deal?
1: <laughs> well, I think the real winners, I would say, are going to be the, the states, right, that the states are fully back in charge again. Uh, in education, that that if you were feeling like you were chafing under the old system, that you had ideas for doing accountability in a better way or teacher evaluation in a better way as a state chief or as a governor, uh, you now have many uh, fewer limitations than before. I think that's going to be good for education reform in the end, that it's going to allow some more ownership at the state level. It's also going to allow for some reboots uh, that I think are going to be necessary to go forward. Uh, You know, otherwise, look, I think uh, I think the big losers, frankly, are are some of the left of center reform groups that have been pushing for a decade now for a very strong federal role. And and frankly, in my view, overreached, you know, that uh, that that they just pushed too far. And I think what you see is a classic backlash. And, you know, I've I've been guilty of this on some issues myself. I mean, you just have to understand that there is uh, you you cannot uh, ignore the concerns of, of you know, in, in this case, I think that they simply ignored the concerns of people who had principled worries about the federal government being so heavily involved in a lot of these decisions. And and now we see this backlash. They, they won't go away. Uh, you know, this law will be reauthorized again, uh, at least it's supposed to be in another four or five years, and maybe the pendulum will swing back in the federal direction. But for now, Uh, It is time for the states to shine.
0: And the states as the big winners is something that gives a lot of people hope, uh, also gives a lot of people heartburn, right? Uh, And they point to poor decisions that states have made in the past, in the pre-No Child Left Behind era. And that's really what we need to watch going forward. I think one of the things that gives me hope is that, um, in part because of No Child Left Behind and the transparency that it provided. There's now a constellation of reform groups in the state, advocacy organizations that I don't think existed in that prior period that uh, could play an important role in holding states' feet to the fire.
1: That's right. No, that, that's absolutely right. And so uh, – and, and look, I believe that none of this is inevitable, right? We're not uh, – in my case, I'm not going to be just watching. I'm going to be trying to do what I can to work with those state reform groups to put good policies into place. Uh, but I also believe that there's you – know, people talk about, will states do the right thing. I don't think we always know what the right thing is. I think there might be lots of right things, right? That's part of the idea here, is that states are going to have a chance to experiment again. And we might come up with some better ideas than we could come up with uh, in Washington alone.
0: So one of the jokes going around is that think tanks need to relocate from Washington, D.C., back to state capitals. Has the Fordham Institute at least increased its travel budget some?
1: (laughs) We, we are proud to have an office in Columbus, Ohio. We do on-the-ground work in Ohio, and we will be doing a lot there. We will be happy to help our partners at the state level, those reform groups around the country. I, I did a lot of traveling a few years ago when the Common Core fight got big. Happy to do that again if necessary.
0: All right. Thanks, Mike. Uh, thanks for being with us today on the EdNext podcast. Uh, people can also check out your own podcast, right?
1: That's right. The Education Gadfly Show every week at edexcellence.net.
0: Excellent. Uh, the EdNext podcast is also uh, now on iTunes, so be sure to subscribe if you're listening to this for the first time. Uh, I'm Marty West. Thanks for being with us today, Mike.
1: Thank you, Marty.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Education Next's weekly podcast, released every Wednesday morning. For more on education reform, visit us online, educationnext.org.